All right. So this summer we've been doing a series on Genesis, and today wraps up that whole series. We've been um, we've been walking through the book of Genesis. It's kind of a survey because there's so much material there you can't cover it all on, you know, 40 minutes on Sunday morning. But our goal is that we want to inspire biblical literacy because. The Genesis story is context for the beginning of everything that we know and um, everything that we are as believers and as people uh, relates to that particular text, to Genesis. And Scott Volk was here last week. You guys hear Scott Volk? We love Scott. He talks about Israel and uh, he and I were having a conversation earlier and um, I think it's really interesting to note don't take this the wrong way, but it's really interesting to know that Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was not. Jesus was not a Christian. Jesus, Jesus was Jewish. And that's important. That's very, 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 very important. And here's why that's important. It's because you cannot understand what someone says outside of the context, right? If I was up here speaking in Japanese, probably very few of you would understand. Right. If I was making cultural references to uh, Chinese culture, a lot of you may not understand what I'm saying because you wouldn't have the context. And a lot of bad things have happened throughout human history because people have taken the words of Jesus out of context. So that you cannot understand Jesus and you cannot understand the words of Christ and you can't really understand um, the Jesus message without the context. And so Scott gave us a little bit of a sample of, um, he talked about Israel last week, but it goes back to this too, to Genesis, to the Old Testament. It sets Jesus up. It gives us, it gives us an understanding of, it gives us a little bit of a context to understand what Jesus is actually saying, right? Anyway, so there's a lot of reasons that we've chosen this series. And I particularly have enjoyed it. I've gotten to preach a couple of times, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. I thought I knew the stories, and I went back and read them, and I see totally th- different things that I saw when I read them when I was young, and I realized I misunderstood some things, and there's things that I missed. Anyway, we like it so much that we're going to continue on, and the next series is going to be a series on Exodus. On Exodus. <laughs> I know. Where's my Bob Marley uh, music? I know. I'm going to get that some Sunday. I'm walking here in Exodus. All right. If you don't know that song, we don't have anything to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. But um, anyway, my dad here this morning is going gonna, is gonna to do a recap of the whole book of Genesis and sort of tie things up. <laughs> so we're going to pray for him because that's a task, right? All right. Reach your hands out towards Pastor Robin. He hates it when I call him Pastor Robin. All right. Lord Jesus, we love my dad, Robin McMillan. And we love everything that you've put in him. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we love scripture. Yes. We do. Yes. It feels like sometimes we're not supposed to say that. We love it. But we love it. It's really, really good. Lord Jesus, and we're sorry we've misunderstood it a lot. But, Lord, we love it. We love the story that you're telling. Lord Jesus, we love the story that you're telling. And I ask that your story would continue to be told through my father, uh, my natural father, Robin McMillan, here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We bless him. Amen. Thank you. A couple of things. Um, 
when we were doing this series, almost without fail, I don't know if it was every, every single time, every single time somebody had a topic, they would say about their topic, I have way too many notes to, uh, to get to all of them today. So multiply that times seven. <laughs> and so we could be here till um, probably second coming, maybe. But um, I want us to, and I, I call this Genesis um, Revisited, and what, what we did, just by way of a little bit of review, oops, is that we divided the book of Genesis into those topics. Say this with me, it'll be awesome. Creation, flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, birth of the nation. And so there were certain things that happened almost every week. Um, I have too many notes to preach from. We would hear that. Then we would hear, oh man, I didn't get the topic I wanted. I think we heard that almost every single time. And um, nevertheless, we took a, I believe the term is cursory, a very generalized look at the book of Genesis. And so in thinking about revisiting Genesis or trying to understand the purpose or the significance of Genesis, um, I want to say a, a number of things. First of all, Genesis postures us to know our origin. It postures us or positions us to know our purpose, and it describes the human dilemma. And, and all of those things are important. You need to know um, who you came from. Actually, uh, the, the idea of having a creator uh, or creation, which was my topic, infers that if we had a creator, that creator has put within us or us within a specific design because the creator's design, that's what they do. In his creation, there's a specific design and that design has a function. The function has a purpose. The purpose reveals your destiny and we come into a sense of accountability as to whether or not we're going to fulfill our destiny, which should bring us to the fear of the Lord, which is where wisdom actually begins. And so when you get away from the truth of, I don't mean the idea because it's not simply an idea as far as I'm concerned, it's reality. When you get away from the reality that we have a creator who has created us, who has put within us certain functions and designs and purposes that should lead us into a fulfilled life of destiny, it brings us to a point of accountability. Are we, are we realizing we owe God something? Can we put it that way? I don't, we owe him something we could never pay as far as salvation is concerned, but as far as function, design, purpose, um, do you realize that's why you're here? Now, if there is no creator, life falls apart, and there's everlasting chaos, 
um, on every level of society. It's just, it's just that, that simple. And um, I have a problem. I, my problem is every time I talk about reality, I resort to the Bible to define it and to understand it. I mean, but but I don't get that. But I don't get that kind of peace. I don't get that kind of confidence. If I go anywhere else to any other philosophical concept of why people are people. And as I've understood, God is not the author of confusion. If you're confused, if you're troubled, if you're not at peace, if you're in turmoil, if you're angry, if you're stirred up, if you have any of those things going on in your life, it's indicative that you somehow, somewhere have veered away from the truth that we have available to us. It's the way we were made. We were made to be happy. We were made to be cheerful. We were made to be joyful. But that cheerfulness and joyfulness is a direct relationship to what your belief structure is. Oh, this is getting good. And your belief structure is directly related to what it is you're believing. So I think it's pretty simple. But it's so simple it gets very complicated quickly, right? Now... Genesis postures us to know our origin, our purpose, describes our dilemma. What's our dilemma? Well, here's our dilemma. This is, this is the one question you come to. Is God good? That's, that's how the devil tripped up Adam and Eve. He got them to doubt in God's goodness and make decisions contrary to that reality. It got him in big trouble. Got us in big trouble. So let's ask that question this morning together. Is God good? Why don't you say that? Is God good? Is God good? If you get that question wrong, it's like not believing in the creator. Because in another way, everything starts falling apart in your life. Um, when I say it describes our dilemma, it actually, the book of Genesis can actually give us insight into what um, our how our fallen nature behaves now i don't mean behaves um relative to bad actions i mean i mean why we're doing what we shouldn't be doing you understand what i'm saying it gives us this insight at the core of everyone's sin problem is blame shifting Blame shifting. It's someone else's fault. As long as that's your primary understanding of why you are the way you are, you have very little hope of changing. This is good news, bad news. It's good news if you believe it. It's bad news if you don't. As far as I'm concerned, it's true in both cases. Blame shifting. It's someone else's fault. You see that right there in the very first pages of the book of Genesis. Um... The Lord said to Adam, and really he made Adam responsible for Eve's behavior at that particular point. We don't like to talk too much about that, but we do know you can't change anybody. So there you go. So that's another side of the equation. But nevertheless, God told Adam of every tree in the garden, thou might freely eat, but 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat thereof. Now, here's a crazy thing, and if you think about this, it'll mess your mind up. The tree had two fruit on it. So if you ate from that tree, you didn't just get one part, you got both parts. You didn't just get good. You got good and evil. And if you want to analyze this on a deeper level, which I don't recommend, but if you want to analyze this on a deeper level, your personal understanding of the knowledge of good and evil is evidence that you are a fallen creature. See, nobody likes that. It's too profound, but it's true. What do I mean by that? I mean, God never intended us to have that capacity ultimately to determine for ourselves and everyone else good and evil. We needed to get that in a relational dynamic between us and God. It's that knowledge that makes us independent of God. If you want to follow this to on and on conclusions, I'm going to stop right there. I won't dig myself out of this hole. Nevertheless, the reality of you having a fallen nature is that when you mess up, you want to find somebody else to blame. It's the human condition. I still do it all the time. It's natural. It's knee jerk. It's like automatic. And if you understand that, you can get by it. I can remember um, this has happened to me more times than I, I should be free to admit. I'll be rushing out of the house. I'd have a book bag in one hand. I'd have notebook in the other. I'd have my car keys in my mouth. And I would be looking for my car keys. And as I'm looking for my car keys, I am angry, potentially, at whoever has misplaced them or not put them back where they should be. You have no idea. There is this almost knee-jerk, maybe it's just I'm more Adamic than the rest of you guys, but it's just like this automatic thing that kicks into gear. The minute something goes wrong, who's to blame? But taking personal responsibility is a primary key to getting out of your mess. Everybody with me? Yeah. John Mark quotes Chesterton. He was a a Catholic mystic, author, incredible character. And the paper said, we would like for you to write an article for the paper. And he said, what would you like the title to be? And he said, what is wrong with the world? And so Chesterton, what is it, G.K. Chesterton, I think his name is, sent them back his article, and it was titled, What is Wrong with the World? And here was the article. Me. That's where it all starts. Perspective. We can actually read our motives into someone other's actions or inactions and be mad about them, about something that has never happened or happened and didn't happen the way we thought, basically because of our motive, our, our, what goes on inside of us. So that helps us understand our dilemma. What else does Genesis do? It reveals to us how God relates to mankind. And the thing I like about the Bible, and John Mark alluded to this earlier, is that the Bible has both overt 
and latent insight in its pages. I can remember as a young Christian one time I thought, I'm going to read the Bible. And my my immediate thought was, oh, I've already read that. You have no idea, honestly, how arrogant that statement was. I've already read that. You, you can read the Bible. A friend of mine said the Holy Spirit will do the onion treatment when it comes to insight. There's layer after layer after layer in the, in the Bible. The wonderful thing about the Bible, it says in, um, I think, 1 Peter chapter 1, The Bible provides for us promises whereby we might become partakers of the divine nature through faith. That's how important the Bible is. I know you shouldn't worship the Bible. Trust me. Your, Your crowd's not in danger of that. Right? Yeah, I'll let you know when you've gone too far, okay? <laughs> Let's believe God said what's in here and endeavor to actually understand uh, the true meanings. Jack Deere, a brilliant uh, friend of mine and preacher, knows 12 languages, can read, probably write 12 languages. And, and some guy was angry or upset about which Bible version to read, uh, you know, which is accurate. And, and uh, Jack said, why don't you read the one that says, love your neighbor? Because <laughs> we substitute knowledge for doing the simple things we should be doing as, as godly people. But anyway, read the Bible. It's awesome. Awesome, awesome. Okay. Now, what did we learn? Oh, I've got plenty of time. This is, this is so much fun. Thank you, folks, for leaving me enough time to talk a long time. <laughs> um, when I look at the book of Genesis and creation, I think about Colossians 1, 15 through 17. You may not actually realize this or have thought through it, but it's not as though the Godhead made everything. It's that Jesus himself created everything. According to Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, by Jesus All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And then when we go to um, the first chapter of Genesis and look at that creation, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I have an opinion about um, how to understand this book of Genesis. How many of you realize by uh, Genesis 1, whenever God created Adam and Eve, there is no mention of the fall of the archangel who became Satan. He just suddenly appears in the garden. You with me? So the first part of Genesis does not really tell us when all that happened. And so I have, I have this opinion. I believe that, and I'll, and I'll give you reasons why. I believe that something happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 that's not clearly articulated in the scripture. I believe that after Genesis 1-1, Satan fell, came to the earth, brought chaos. Because I personally don't believe that God creates something that's formless and void. And that's what we find in Genesis 1-2. Those two words, formless and void, actually mean... Um, I have those definitions somewhere. Well, it, it doesn't just mean some nebulous glob of undefinable matter. It actually means something that has been rendered destitute, like been made into a wilderness. And I don't believe God creates a wilderness I don't believe God creates confusion. Um, I believe, when, for instance, when God created animals, he created full bore, 100% on the hoof, ready for the market, unless you're vegging, animals. But when he created Adam, he created a complete, whole, perfect person. You with me? And his wife, Eve. Out of his, the rib, perfect, not something that needed to be improved upon. Now, why, why would that, um, why would that be important? Well, I think it's important because we can see from the very beginning of the book of Genesis our purpose. When God put man in the garden, and I use that mankind, Adam and Eve in the garden, he put them in a paradise. It's as though he were instituting a plan on how to enlarge Eden to encompass the entire globe. Now, I, I say that because he tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth. He tells Adam and Eve to subdue. What would you need to subdue? Listen, if you had an all-inclusive week at Club Med, there would be no subduing going on down there. There would be nothing to subdue. You, it's paradise. It's provided. It's there. So how is it there that they are subduing? How is it that God has called them to take authority or dominion over. It's because I believe God has called mankind, you and I, to this day, to release the presence and power of the kingdom of God in the earth. 
should begin in your personal life. It should go to your home. It should go to your children. It should go to your occupation. And what we should be doing is turning the world into a heaven. I heard a a Bishop Boone say one time, um, what if God decided to make heaven exactly like who you are? Would you want to go? That's a little scary. But what he was really saying was, do you take to heart the idea that, that God has called you to be transformed and to be a transformer? God has called you to be a full participant in what he has called the kingdom of heaven. Our prototypical example of how that works and how we can live was the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus did not come to the world to show us how God would live if he were here. He came and became a man to show us how mankind should live. Somebody squeak out a little partial amen. So we can actually begin to see the roots of this in the book of Genesis. God puts man in the garden. God gives the man and the woman authority. He gives them a vision. He wants them to have children. He wants them to take territory. He wants them to make the rest of the world that we have already, we already see in the Garden of Eden that Satan has somehow destroyed or negatively affected. He wants us to withstand his opposition and walk in the reality of what it is to be a new creation ourselves. It's powerful. Right there in the book of Genesis, God gives you a purpose. Now, um, God said to tend, to work, to keep, to guard the garden. The word guard means to hedge about, to protect. What do you protect in paradise from if that's all there was to it? How many, how many of you have a sense of protection of your wife, your husband, your family? You want to guard them. That, that's the garden. That's the original garden God has given you as your family. I think the best churches are churches where families have stepped into the calling God has given them. And they're expressing at home and they're expressing together corporately and they're expressing in the relationships and they're expressing in the community what it is to live in harmony with God and harmony with each other. We find all of that in the original pages of the book of Genesis. Is that okay? All right. Now, the flood. I was, uh, I was not here when John Mark spoke on the flood and I was, um, I was very blessed by a number of the things that John Mark, the points he made, the whole idea that, um, that God hates violence, uh, the idea that it was because of violence that God brought that flood. I was, and you need to, uh, you can go back and listen to these if you didn't hear them. They're at, at queencity.church under media. The covenant God made after the flood the covenant where God promised he wouldn't destroy the earth again with water. The sign of that covenant is the rainbow. And one of the points John Mark made, and I I never even had this thought once, 
And that's one of the reasons it's so significant to have different voices in the pulpit. That's why it's so important to have different perspectives is, is there's so much to see. There's so much benefit to gain from one another that one person just doesn't have it all. I, you know, you've got limited perspective. But John Mark was saying that the rainbow, um, the sign of the covenant God made with us, the bow is like a bow and arrow. And if you look at the rainbow after the earth had been destroyed by the flood and only eight people survived, God gives a covenant, which is a bow, but the direction the arrow would fly in that bow would be to heaven itself, not the earth. And the the point John Mark made was tremendous. God aimed the bow at himself. I think this is a direct quote. Waffle House, not Starbucks. Sorry. Lowering the bar. (laughs) I believe this is a direct quote. John Mark said of God, he would take the punch. He would take the sting. He would absorb the blow. He would take the hit himself. He would take the violence upon himself, which is what we see in the new covenant. What we see in the death of the Lord Jesus. He took the blow. Bible says he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Here's something that um, I really love. It's, it's the magnitude of the flood, that's debatable. The animals, the ark, Noah. But, you know, it's incredible to me that based on how you read the Bible for, some people say 120 years Noah built the ark. That's not really what it says, but it was probably at least 90-something. He, he built an ark because God said it was going to rain when it had never rained. You see, we, we, we definitely have a perspective on what rain is because we've seen rain. But the Bible says prior to the deluge, a mist would cover the earth, not rain. A mist would replenish the earth. So God tells Noah to build a boat that he is supposed to expect all these animals to walk into of their own volition, Should have swatted those two mosquitoes, by the way. (laughs) And he did it for close to to 100 years. Now, here's the point. Literal, I don't know. I I sort of like to believe in Noah's Ark. I'm still hoping they find the remains up on Ararat somewhere, quite honestly. But nevertheless, there's something more important than that. It's the kind of faith Noah demonstrated is remarkable that he was so connected to God that he would work for generations to build something that he had very little understanding of how much he was going to need. You with me? Well, the Bible says this over in the Gospels. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And the idea there is 
just as Noah built an ark, churches are arks. Churches are structures of people joined together. And I believe it's because there's another flood coming. But I think it's a different kind of flood. Now, those verses can also be used about the return of the Lord and the end of the age and great tribulation. And How many of you are confused about the return of the Lord, the rapture, the great tribulation? And Be honest. Raise your hand. No, really, be honest. Raise your hand. You, you, you'd think it, if God wanted us to not be confused, he'd have made it plainer. So it must not be all that important what you believe about that. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there, anyway, before I get stoned or tomatoed here, just keep going. I believe there's this other flood coming. And it's going to disturb John MacArthur excessively. Joel 2, 28 through 31, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out. Say pour out. Pour out what? My spirit on who? All flesh. I believe the day is coming when that outpouring will be as equal to all flesh as that rain was in the days of Noah on all flesh, according to Joel chapter 2. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You know, I've been amazed. A lot of you guys didn't have to fight some of the things I had to fight. Um, I came from an age where there was... Uh, no baptism in the Holy Ghost, no speaking in tongues, no miracles, no signs, no wonders. Um, all that was gone. And women couldn't preach. I thought, well, ain't, ain't nothing left to do. I mean. <laughs> the problem was I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I spoke in tongues. I had prophetic encounters with the Lord. I saw people get healed. Now, the, the rank and file believed that was of the devil. Many, many people. That all that went out with the apostles. And they have these doctrines about that. But listen, I have, I, I, I have a certain reactionary part of my nature. I, I realize that. I get it. But, but if you would understand me, I have had to react against what I would consider to be Wrong concepts, wrong ideas that restricted the presence and power of God and the purpose God has for every life to function at its fullest point since I met Jesus as a teenager back in the 1960s. And I had to fight uh, for the things I believed. I, I, I had a guy in the business world. He said, you're, you're going to have a crummy family when you grow up. When you have kids, you're going to have a terrible family. I said, why? He said, but you, you're too interested in the supernatural. I, didn't, I, I have a great family. They're a little different, you know, a little dysfunctional. It's in the, listen, we're going to see that in a minute. That's in the... Uh, Patriarchal DNA, ladies, this this dysfunction. No, but uh, um, 
I believe in apostles. I believe in prophets. I believe in evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? Because the Bible says we have those until we all come into the unity of the faith. Uh, Could you call what we have the unity of the faith? So they have to be there if you believe the Bible. They just simply have to be there. Now, what they are and how they work. But nevertheless, um, I would run into certain people who would say, um, prophecy is preaching. Because there's no prophecy. But then Joel 2 says your women can prophesy, but they still wouldn't let them preach. Now, that, that might not be meaningful to hold people in here about the way you thought, but I'm just, this is who I am. I have had to, um, uh, my entire natural family growing up at a given point thought I had lost my mind. I had my mother send my dad to come pick me up to institutionalize me one time because of what I believed, simply because of what I believed. You, if you don't understand that, um, and, and there's a point I'm making. Here, here's the point I'm making. We need to maintain the ground that our forefathers fight for and obtain because it's important. We may not understand always why it's important, but we need to, we need to maintain that ground. Nevertheless, here's what I believe. God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. And I believe that's an outpouring we have yet to, to fully see. So, um, As we look down through the um, creation and the flood, we look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see the lives of the patriarchs. The significance, and here again, there's so much to say. But basically, God chose a man named Abram of early Chaldees who became Abraham. He told him to get out of his land and go to a land he would show him later. Took a lot of faith. He was a wealthy man. Took his entire crowd with him. And at a given point, God told Abraham, I'm going, he, he and his wife were barren. God promised him, I'm going to give you a son. As most of us would do, we try to fulfill um, God's promises out of time. We make a mess of it. And then he's got to come back and do it his way. It happens all the time. It's the story of our lives sometimes. But God promised Abraham this. He says, I'm going to give you a seed. Talking about a child And that child will become a blessing to the entire world. And that seed he spoke about was the Christ. Through the lineage of Abraham, the Messiah came. A lot more you can say about Abraham. Isaac. I can remember when we talked about who was going to get Isaac, and we all determined Isaac didn't do enough to hard to preach on. But, you know, there are some remarkable things about Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter. And Isaac was the flesh and blood miraculous answer. The provision God promised Abraham was Isaac. Isaac means laughter. The interesting thing, God can tell you something so impossible. The only response you can have is laugh and unbelief. 
And then when the fulfillment comes, the only possible response you could then have is the laughter of joy, the incredulity of fulfilled promise. That's what Isaac speaks of. But it also speaks of this. One of Isaac's primary functions was he unblocked the wells of his father. And I think that speaks to me of a generation who needs to maintain the ground their spiritual forefathers uh, have gained. Jacob, so you go creation, flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob to me is so remarkable. He's the prototypical schemer, trickster, liar, crook. God, through a process, changes Jacob's name to Israel. But the Bible says over and over, I'm the God of Abraham. It doesn't say Isaac. It says, I'm the God of Abraham. Then it says it again, I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Jacob. It doesn't even say I'm the God. Of course, it says the God of Israel later. But that is so meaningful to me that God will claim us at our worst. God will call him our God when we have done not just nothing to deserve it, but things to offend him. And he calls us, I'm the God of Jacob. I really, I really do love that. We see Jacob becomes Israel. He has 12 sons and 12 sons become the 12 tribes. One point I like to make is God has no grandsons. Everybody's got to be born again. Now, I think one of the most um, significant things we learn from this study is of the dysfunctional nature of the patriarchal family. I, um, I'm writing a book on hope. And part of it, let me read to you. Let's consider the present state of humanity in view of our great forefathers and heroes of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of our faith are our spiritual forefathers and yet leaders of a most corrupt and dysfunctional family. Abraham and Isaac both lied about wives being sisters to save their own skin. Their children schemed, cheated, lied, betrayed one another, and some murdered whole cities. The tales of their many failures and indiscretions are staggering. It's, it's in the Bible. Why on earth would God choose such men to spearhead our faith and establish the household of God? Have you ever wondered that? Could God not have chosen a more noble and righteous family? Were there not more deserving and exemplary people available? God's wisdom cannot be denied. He chose them to show his kindness and exceeding great mercy to succeeding generations, to reveal his power to transform and redeem mankind, to impart his impregnable hope to fallen and sinful people down through the ages and forever. One must certainly acknowledge that our God truly is the God of hope. Who can read their life stories fraught with failure and destruction and not find hope for our own lives and families? This is a remarkable story. 
that's who we're introduced in the book of Genesis. And then I read this. Let's consider the lineage of the Messiah and other heroes of our faith. Adam and Eve sinned. Noah got drunk and cursed one of his sons. Moses was a murderer. Elijah ran from a woman. Abraham lied, put his wife in a compromising position. Isaac did too. Sarah forced her servant girl into the desert to die. Jacob was a con man and had big relational issues. Jacob's son sold their brother into slavery. Joseph was proud, foolishly told his family his dreams. Gideon was fearful. Samson had a lust problem. Rahab was a whore. Samuel had ungodly children. David was a murderer. The woman at the well had five husbands. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. The 12 apostles denied and deserted the Lord when he needed them most. Peter did it with oaths and curses. Paul was a murderer and a religious fanatic. Paul writes this about himself. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so that gives us hope. None of those people stayed that way. They all had transforming encounters with the Lord. But none of those things they did disqualified them from having encounters with God. That's what we first see in the book of Genesis. Now, what did we learn from creation? That God created us and has a good plan for our lives. What about the flood? God was willing to take our judgment upon himself. Abraham, that God asked flawed people to believe him, and through their faith, he immeasurably blesses the world. Through Isaac, God's improbable, miraculous interventions make us laugh first in unbelief, then in joyful satisfaction. Jacob, God loves, chooses, and uses flawed people to give us hope. Joseph, the absolute fulfillment of Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The birth of the nation. God is the God that gives life to the dead and keeps his word even over many generations. Amen. Hello. Hello. All right, let's stand up real quick and pray real quick. Father God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we're a part of your story. And I ask, Lord, you would continue to reveal your story to us yes. um, throughout the days, weeks, and months of our lives. Lord Jesus, and we thank you so much. Uh, for the heart you have for us and uh, for the heart even to show us that we are a part of your story, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Show us what it means, Lord. Not just the knowledge, not just the information, Lord Jesus, but show us what it means to be a part of that story and how to posture our lives in a way that we could be uh, the best part of that story in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have uh, ministry teams.
Where are the ministry teams? Over here. I've done this a million times and I never remember. We have ministry teams if you want prayer, if you need uh, healing, or you just want to hear from the Lord, or um, you just need prayer. We have ministry teams over here. Be sure to come um, up here and get some ministry. And uh, Is there anything else? And that's it. Thank you guys so much. We love you, and we'll see you again next week. (laughs)